0: I had heard about the Jewish underground, but I had not believed it. The kids spoke about the resistance that was coming, how some Jews were trying to get guns to fight the Nazis, even to break out of the ghetto. But we had seen no sign of it. I believed it was a fairy tale, the kind of story boys tell each other. I was a blonde haired, blue eyed boy with an uncircumcised penis. I could pass for an Aryan. Perhaps they would use me to smuggle food into the ghetto. I was excited. I knew I could do it. Finally, the leader raised his hand as if the discussion was over. He had reached a decision. Only then did he turn and look straight at me. He told me his name was Aaron. Are you brave? He asked. Yes, I said. Are you brave enough to perform a task that carries with it a grave risk, most likely a mortal risk? Yes, I said, though of course I had no idea of such things. I was saying what I thought would save me. I am going to give you a task on behalf of your people. You are to travel to Warsaw to an address I will give you. You will give them this message. Are you ready? I nodded, though I was not ready. You will go there and you will say these words. Do not change them. Not even one word. This is the message. Aunt Esther has returned and is at Megillah Street 7, apartment 4. So began my journey armed with the right Aryan identity papers and a travel document for Warsaw. I can't remember if I pretended to be 15 or older or younger, but the truth is that I was just a 12-year-old boy traveling alone through Europe in wartime, showing that precious Ken Carter to Nazi border guards in Mariampola and Suwalki and Bialystok over and over again. And finally I pulled into Warsaw. It was midday and the place was bustling, but no one was going where I was going. My destination was the Warsaw Ghetto. I dug into the hole I'd made in the lining of my coat, the place where I had hidden my yellow star and pinned it back on. I waited for a group of workers to return, and I tagged along. My contact in the underground had promised it would be like Kofno. Workers only had to show papers when they went out, not when they came back in. And so now I was inside streets as crammed and infested with disease as the ones I had left behind. There were corpses in the gutter here, too but I found the house I was looking for and told them who I had the message for. It was only after the war that I discovered what had prompted my mission. It was a response to something that had happened three days earlier. Some Jews working outside the ghetto had seen a young girl, barely clothed, her eyes wild and staring. She'd been one of those pushed to the right at Demogratu Square, along with my sisters. The selection had gone on all day, past nightfall, Rauka on the mound, smoking his cigarette or eating his sandwiches, all the while judging the column of people that shuffled before him, ignoring their cries and blocking out their pleas. Eventually, there were ten thousand of them, pushed through a hole in the fence into an area known as the Small Ghetto. Some had felt relieved, concluding that this had been nothing more than an elaborate exercise in rehousing. But at dawn the next morning, they realized their mistake. Lithuanian militiamen burst in and began beating and pushing the Jews out of their new homes, herding them into a column and ordering them to march. They were to make the four-kilometer trek to the ninth fort, the old encampment built in Tsarist times and designed to keep the Germans out. The Nazis had a name for this route. They called it Der Zur Himmelfahrt, The Way to the Heavenly Journey. They did not arrive till noon, and once they had, there was no respite. The Lithuanian thugs were quick to grab any jewelry, pulling off earrings and bracelets, and then ordering the Jews to strip naked. Only then did they lead them to the pits. Those who had survived the march now began to scream. They understood where this heavenly journey had led them. Some tried to escape, but they were shot instantly. And so the killing began. First the Nazis tossed the children into the pit, Then the machine gunners in position for precisely this purpose opened fire. The women were lined up at the edge of the crater and shot there in the back so that they would fall on top of the children. The men were last. They killed them in batches of 300 with no guarantee that one batch was finished when work began on the next. They had to work fast. Besides, ammunition was rationed so that the Nazis could not afford more than one bullet to the back per victim and most of the gunmen were drunk. The result was that many Jews were not dead when they fell. They were buried alive. This was the fate especially of the children. But not only them. Those who saw it told of how the pit moved for three days, how it breathed. This is the event they called the Great Action of October 28, 1941, when 10,000 Jews were driven out of the Kofno ghetto and put to death. And this is how my sisters were killed. The girl who had found her way back, shivering and starving to the ghetto, was one of those who had been buried but not shot. This was the story she told once she was clothed and fed and could speak. And this was the story which had reached the leaders of the Jewish underground in Kofno. Perhaps for the first time they understood what kind of threat they faced. And so they had decided they must spread the word to those who were also trying to fight back. Which was why they sent me to Warsaw. When I said the words Aunt Esther has turned up again and is at Megillah Street seven apartment four, he looked bemused. But then he asked for someone to bring him a book, a holy book rescued from the ruins of it the synagogue the read, in the ghetto. For the festival of Puri It was the book which of commemorates Esther, a plot which many Jews hundreds of years ago of to of destroy the Jews. This leader of the underground turned to chapter seven, verse four, and then he understood everything. He read it out loud, as if it would help him think. For I and my people are sold to be exterminated, slain and lost. But if we were only being sold as slaves and maidservants, I would have stayed silent. The front door was open, just as it had been earlier, but this time there were no other voices. He reached the landing where he had first met Rebecca Merton three hours earlier. Now all he could see was her back as she surveyed the wreckage of her apartment. The sofa had been slashed, its stuffing bursting out like unkempt hair. The TV had been upended, even the plants had been shaken from their pots. Tom had never seen a place so comprehensively trashed. This was no ordinary robbery. Suddenly she wheeled around, her eyes ablaze. Well, this bloody confirms it. Did you watch them do it then? Did you stand and watch? What the hell are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that my home just happens to have been smashed up straight after you came here. And look, five minutes after I called you, you're back. Were you on the corner the whole time, making sure they did a good job? Are you mad? This has nothing to do with me. It's a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? First the UN kill my father, and the next day my flat, which has never once been burgled, by the way, is suddenly wrecked. You think the UN did this? What were you looking for? Dirt? There was a hint of the crooked smile. Is that why you sent the boys in, Tom Byrne? To see what discrediting filth you could dig up on the dead man's daughter? So, if I dare to demand justice from the organization that killed my father, you'll start telling the news of the world who I fucked at medical school? Jesus, and this is the holier than thou United Nations! She looked at him hard, as if scrutinizing his face for signs of truthfulness. He found the gaze unnerving, because all he wanted to do was look back. Then she turned around as if remembering something, and sprinted upstairs. Tom saw his chance. He swiftly reached into his briefcase, pulled out Gershon Matskin's notebook, and was about to throw it onto the pile in the center of the room when something stopped him. He wanted to be straight with her. He put the book back inside his bag, waiting for the right moment. A few seconds later, she was back, brushing past him into the kitchen. She only touched him for a second, but it was enough. He almost rocked back on his heels from the charge of it, The arousal was instant. Was he the kind of man to get turned on by the sight of a woman in distress? He didn't think so. Or was it just the combined effects of fatigue and adrenaline? He had no guide. He hadn't felt this way since adolescence. He followed her on her tour of devastation. What on earth had happened here? It would have been extremely rapid. She and he had barely been gone an hour. An expert, too. The perpetrators must have seen both of them leave. The superficial items of value, TV set, stereo, were still in place. This wasn't the work of crackheads out to make fifty quid. They had been desperate to find something specific. And now Rebecca was searching, clearly panicked some precious object had been stolen. She went back up the short flight of stairs, past a bedroom, to a study. Here she gasped, as she saw box files and heaps on the floor, their contents scattered like feathers from a pillow. She stood still for a while and then turned to Tom. If you're behind this in any way, I will get in my car, drive to the nearest newspaper office, and give them the story that will ruin the reputation of the UN and you. Do you understand me? All I have to do is tell them the truth of what happened here and what kind of man the UN killed yesterday. What do you mean, what kind of man the UN killed? You'd understand if only I could find... Is this what you're looking for? Tom produced... Gershon Matzkin's journal from his case. Oh, thank God. She grabbed the book and held it to her chest, her eyes closed like a mother clutching a child lost in the park. Then her eyes opened into a wide stare. Where did you get this? It was a mistake. I thought it was mine. He took out his own near-identical notebook and held it up. I was going to come right back here and give it to you. She held the book tight again, her face a picture of relief. He half wondered if she was going to thank him for inadvertently ensuring this heirloom had been kept safe from the break-in. But then she looked at him hard, her gaze powerful enough to make his muscles weaken. I don't know whether I can believe a word you say. There was silence before she spoke again. Did you read it? He hesitated. Bits. Well, now I'd like you to read it properly. And she placed the book in his hands.